Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Larry Stamm is back today to continue his series, Jewish Roots of Christianity, and James Collins visits with Michael Samuel Smith. Our next Prophecy Conference is online. The Winter Virtual Prophecy Conference is all online and on demand. 13 different speakers and over 20 different teaching sessions. Register today and watch as often as you want between February 4th through the 12th. The lineup of speakers include Kamal Salim, Pastor Michael Hoggard, Eric Barger, Dr. Rob Lindstead, Greg Patton, Larry Stamm, Micah Van Huss, James Collins, Dr. Larry Spargimino, Billy Crone, Dave Brees, Les Feldick, and David Bay. Sign up today for the Winter Virtual Prophecy Conference by visiting the events page on our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Here's Larry Stamm, host of the new television series, Jewish Roots of Christianity, to continue sharing with us the Jewish history of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here. So glad you're joining me as we continue our study in the Jewish Roots of Christianity. We are doing a biblical survey of the redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. I hope if you've joined us in previous programs that you've been encouraged and edified in the faith. If you're joining us today for the first time, I'm so glad you're taking some of your precious time to be with us as we study the redemptive plan of God for mankind from Genesis to Revelation in this Jewish Roots of Christianity study. In our last study, we concluded the gospel in the Old Testament. We began our study of key covenants affecting Israel, the church, and God's redemptive plan for man. We talked last time about the Abrahamic covenant, which was important to note, an unconditional covenant. God gave Abraham three promises. He promised that he would bless Abraham and make his name great. So there was an individual promise in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. God gave Abraham a national promise and that he would make Abraham a great nation through the nation of Israel. And then finally in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God's final unconditional promise in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham because through Abraham came the nation of Israel. Remember, Abraham begot Isaac, begot Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel were the Jewish people. And God, through the nation of Israel, brought forth the Messiah. And in fact, we see all the nations of the world have in fact been blessed because of the person and work of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, who has in fact called out a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and land, all to the glory and honor of our living God, Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last time we spoke about the Mosaic Covenant, we spoke that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. God makes a covenant with the entire nation of Israel in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. He reminds Israel he's their savior. He promises to make them 
a special treasure if they entered into the covenant, which they did, but ultimately they broke that covenant. And then finally he declares Israel in Exodus 19.6 to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto the nations. Now as we continue our study, I want us to note that Israel was called to be God's priestly nation to the world. In Psalm 117, we find God blessing the Gentiles or nations. The Hebrew word goyim literally means nations, from which we get the word Gentile. God blesses the nations, the Gentiles. In Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the book of Psalms, we read, O praise the Lord, all ye nations, or Gentiles. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Remember we had mentioned in programs past, in Isaiah 56, verse 7, the Lord said, I will make my house a reverence to the temple, a house of prayer for all nations. God's desire and design is not for Jews or Gentiles specifically. God's redemptive plan is for mankind, for God so loved the world. In the Mosaic Covenant, it's a conditional covenant, and God lays out the conditions of this covenant given to Moses and the Jewish people. In Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, God basically tells them, if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed, and if you disobey my commandments, you will be cursed. Israel broke those commandments of God. They broke the Mosaic Covenant, and yet It wasn't because something was flawed in that covenant God made with Israel through Moses. Sometimes the Mosaic Covenant is referred to as the Old Covenant, and that's certainly appropriate. The Old Covenant as compared to the New Covenant, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. But the Mosaic Covenant was holy, it was righteous, and it was good, as the Apostle Paul notes in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he wrote, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. The Mosaic Covenant specifically and the law of God found in the Old Testament was in fact holy, righteous, and good, but it did not save. Remember, we talked about salvation. God didn't design the Mosaic Law as a means of salvation. He gave them the Mosaic Law to show them that they were lawbreakers in need of forgiveness that God would provide through the altar of sacrifice and their faith in believing in what God had provided. In the Old Testament, that provision was found in the sacrificial system on the altar of sacrifice. We have mentioned before in Leviticus 17.11, God stated through Moses, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. We find ultimately that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our great high priest, as his people would offer himself a living sacrifice, a one-time-for-all atoning sacrifice. So the blood of Christ does not cover sin. It actually cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future. But the law was holy, righteous, and good. The Mosaic Covenant was holy, righteous, and good. The problem was it was conditional. The problem wasn't God's. It was the nation of Israel. They were not faithful to the covenant. They broke that covenant. 
The Mosaic Law showed them their sin and need for salvation and a Savior. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote that the law was a tutor to lead people to Messiah, specifically in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The Word of God states, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. There's a little bit about the Mosaic Covenant. Again, I commend you to a study of that covenant God gave Moses and the Israelites by studying Exodus chapters 19 through 24, and then the conditions of the covenant laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 regarding those covenant blessings and cursings. We transition now to the Davidic Covenant, which was, to begin with, unconditional. Remember, a covenant, an agreement, a binding agreement between two parties. And God's covenant that he made with people were either unconditional, meaning God said what he would do and did do or will do, and it wasn't based upon a condition of man in any way, shape, or form, or a nation. A conditional covenant was God basically said, I will if you or if you, I will. And so there was a condition. The Davidic covenant was an unconditional covenant that he makes with David. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 7. We are now getting into a section of God's covenants that deal with Israelology, if you will, the study of Israel, and specifically what we're doing in our redemptive study of God's plan for mankind as we connect the dots between the Old and New Testaments is we are finding now that the Davidic covenant is really critical and there's much that could be said. We're only covering a few highlights in our study, but I commend you to do a study of the Davidic covenant on your own. We're only hitting highlights again. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, we read, Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I was with thee when thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David." God promised he would make David's name great. That's in verse 9 of 2 Samuel. God promised he would continue David's line and establish his throne forever. 
So this throne of David was a throne God established forever, and we find that in 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 16, and also we note in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16, God says, And thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So notice this promise of God given to David through Nathan. This Davidic covenant is unconditional. Verses 14 and 15, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And notice the provision. God says, even if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Certainly God chastened David for his sin. Certainly God chastened Solomon. But note in verse 15, God says, But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And in verse 16, reiterates this eternal promise. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So the Davidic throne is an eternal throne. David sat on that throne. Solomon sat on that throne. But ultimately... The King of kings and Lord of lords shall sit on that throne. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We find who will ultimately sit on the Davidic throne. This is a powerful prophecy of God. Again, Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ walked this earth, as a man. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, Isaiah 6, the Word of God continues, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I want us to notice the progression of the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and ultimately sitting upon the eternal throne, the throne of David. Friends, we need to understand that only one throne is eternal. That's the throne of God. And Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will sit on that throne of David forever. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us, this again is a messianic prophecy, a powerful prophecy of Jesus, and his mission as the king of king sitting on the throne of David. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. By the way, that word, the Mighty God, perhaps better rendered Mighty God, period, because in the Hebrew it is El Gibor, El meaning God, Gibor, the word for mighty. So this child who is born, this son is given. His name is called El Gibor, mighty God. 
So this child is divine. He's also called this human child, the everlasting father. Remember Jesus, fully man and fully God. In verse 7, the scripture continues in Isaiah 9, we read in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Again, the operative word regarding this child who is born, who is called mighty God, everlasting father, he's sitting upon the throne of David, an eternal throne. God will establish it with judgment and justice forever. That's the key for the Davidic covenant is God promised to make David's name great and that he would continue David's line and establish his throne forever. And that's a little bit about the Davidic covenant. Again, I encourage you to study it out further by going back over 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17, also looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Next time, we are going to begin our study on the New Covenant, which is the covenant that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, live under today. We, in short, are living in the New Covenant economy, and we're going to talk about what that means. But just to give you a little bit of a teaser, if you remember in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus raises the third cup as he institutes communion, which, by the way, was a Passover Seder, he lifts that cup, which was the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. What about the new covenant? We are going to study it at length in our next study. So glad you've taken some of your time to be with us today as we've continued our study on the Jewish roots of Christianity. I hope that you have been encouraged and edified in the faith. And until next time, friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Larry Stamm's book and television series is available for you and your church. Call 1-800-652-1144 and order both the book and complete 16-episode television series today. 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. James Collins recently sat down with Michael Samuel Smith. Let's listen in. Typology is a form of symbolism that is prophetic. In the Old Testament typology, there are people and objects that prefigure or foreshadow. Now, a type is a whisper of or a point to something that is yet to happen, or someone, most often the Lord Jesus Christ, who is yet to come. In the Bible, Joseph is clearly seen as a type of Jesus throughout his life. With me to talk about Joseph is prophecy researcher and Bible teacher Michael Samuel Smith. And Mike has produced a wonderful teaching DVD titled Joseph in Egypt, which is available now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Brother Mike, welcome back to The Watchman on the Wall. 
thank you, Dr. Collins. It's always a great pleasure to be with you. Well, let's talk about this video, Joseph in Egypt. Now, in the DVD, you trace the story of Joseph as a type and shadow of Jesus, the Messiah's past, present, and future relationship with the nation of Israel. So let's take those in order. How is Joseph a type of Jesus' past relationship with the nation of Israel? Well, to start with, I wanted the audience to know there are well over 100 parallels between Jesus and Joseph and their relationship with Israel. Here are some examples. Number one, Joseph was a shepherd and Jesus was a shepherd, the good shepherd. Number two, Joseph was sent by his father to take food to his brothers, and Jesus was sent by his heavenly father to feed his brothers Israel with manna from heaven. Number three, Joseph was a type and shadow savior to his people because of the food he provided during the famine. Jesus was also a savior to his people and saved them from their sins. Number four, just as Joseph was sold out by his brothers, Jesus was sold out by his brothers, the priests and Sanhedrin. And number five, lastly, Joseph's brothers took counsel to kill him, Genesis 37 and 20, and Jesus' brothers took counsel to crucify him. Amen. Well, how is Joseph a type of Jesus' present relationship with the nation of Israel? Well, for this one, we need to put on our prophecy hat for just a moment. There will ultimately be three times the Jewish brothers will be in Egypt before Joseph reveals his identity. Although it's the second time when the brothers came and Benjamin the younger is with them, when they came the first time, Joseph was masking his identity. Brother Simeon was held as a hostage at their first arrival. Then Joseph told the other ten brothers to return back home to Canaan land with the food that they were given. After arriving home, Brother Judah told Father Jacob, the man has said, referring to Joseph, you shall not see my face again unless you bring Benjamin with you. That's in Genesis 43 and 3. There's a parallel with Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. And Jerusalem is about to be overrun near the end of the tribulation, and nearly all hope is lost for Israel. Jesus said the Jews will have to say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23 and 39. I'll say it in Hebrew. Baruch, Haba, Bashem Adonai. And when Israel makes that cry, Jesus Messiah will show up and save Israel. Well, back to the second time the brothers show up with Benjamin. Simeon the hostage is released, and a great feast is prepared for the brothers. They place the brothers at the table in the order of their ages. The Egyptians even wash the brothers' feet. You'll find that in Genesis 44 and 24. A feet-washing service, if you will, which, by the way, the Egyptians would never wash the feet of Jews, but these are Joseph's servants complying with his orders. They put five times more food at Benjamin's place, Genesis 43 and 34 and supplied their donkeys with food and water, Genesis 43 and 24. The parallel to this Kumbaya dinner feast is, in fact, the Last Supper and our invitation today by participating in communion through Jesus Christ. After the dinner, all the brothers pack up and head out for Canaan land. But Joseph has played a trick on his brothers. 
he secretly placed a silver cup in Benjamin's sack. This trick was for good, not for evil. So Joseph sends his soldiers out to the brothers out in the desert. They say a silver cup was taken from Joseph's palace, and they want to go through the brothers' bags. Wouldn't you know it, they find the missing silver cup in Benjamin's bag. By the way, the name Benjamin in Hebrew means the son of my right hand, which has a messianic connection, prophetically speaking. The brothers are hauled back to the palace, thinking it's curtains for them. You see, this trick was played out by Joseph to see if the brothers were going to throw Benjamin under the bus like they did with Joseph selling him off to Egypt. But unbelievably, Judah, the one who sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, steps up to the plate and pleads for the life of Benjamin. Based on this, Joseph now knows the brothers' sincerity passes the test. Remember, this talking point is about Joseph and Jesus' present relationship with Mm -hmm. Israel. Now I'm going to show you a type and shadow rapture in this story that will apply even today. The next thing that happens, and you may want to write it down, is Genesis 45 and 1. Joseph says, cause every man to go out from me. Let me put it in plain English. Joseph wants all the Gentiles to evacuate themselves out of the room so he can privately reveal his identity to his Jewish brothers. I believe this generation, all the Gentile believers, will be evacuated from planet Earth via the rapture so Jesus Christ Messiah will reveal himself to his Jewish brothers and sisters alone. Amen. We're looking forward to that day, the day of the rapture, and we see, of course, Jesus' future relationship there with types and shadows in the story of Joseph. Brother Mike, how is God's plan of salvation revealed in Joseph's story? In Joseph's story, just as the baker was destined to die and the butler was destined to live in Genesis chapter 40, we all have a choice in life to die in our sins or live forever in Christ. Maybe there's someone out there who is lost and undone and without hope. Because Joseph had a personal relationship with the Lord, he truly had happiness, even in very difficult times of adversity. If you're willing to put your trust and faith in Christ, you too can go from the pit of this world to the palace room of God. And that's what the story of Joseph is truly all about. We've been speaking with prophecy researcher and Bible teacher Michael Samuel Smith about the DVD Joseph in Egypt, which is available now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can get a copy at our website, swrc.com. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In our resource center today, we have Michael Samuel Smith's DVD, Joseph in Egypt. Order your copy of this fascinating study of Joseph, packed with prophetic golden nuggets from beginning to end. Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Larry Spargimino shares the fascinating story of what happened on the island of Hebrides. 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Thank you.